We're recording now. We're recording now. Let's fuck this shit up. Let's fuck this shit up. Hello. Welcome back to Too Scared to Sleep. This Hi, is guys. Dylan. That was Jake. Hi, guys. There Welcome he is. Welcome to Too Scared to Sleep. Yeah, here we are. And boy, do I have a story to tell the listeners. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm such an idiot. I'm so excited for you to tell this story. The title on. of this story is How Stupid Can I Be? I'll tell you how stupid I can be. Spoiler. Very. Very stupid. Very stupid. All right. So let's see. My dad has always had motorcycles, and I have always wanted a motorcycle. Okay? Haven't had a chance to. And then I started dating Alex almost six months ago, and she's mm-hmm. got a motorcycle. She's a badass. Yeah. And, and I have a motorcycle, too. But we'll just Dylan's leave me got out a of motorcycle. it. Dylan also has a motorcycle. Lots of people <laughs> have motorcycles. Thank you. So I started thinking to myself a couple of weeks ago. I'm like... Is there any reason why I can't have a motorcycle? There's absolutely no reason. I have played it safe for so many years now. You know, I drive an, a late model Toyota Camry that's paid off. You know, I don't have a car payment. I spend about, combined, about $100 on vehicle insurance and gasoline every month. I'm like, you know, I can get a bike. It's no big deal. So I start looking and I found the perfect, I did a lot of research on the internet and looking on forums and stuff what's the kind of what's the best kind of beginner bike to get what type of bike should i get and so i end up finding one i end up narrowing it down and i decide that i want to get a suzuki sv650 which is the type of bike called a naked sport bike which means that it's a sport bike style but it doesn't have all of the space age sci-fi looking fairings on it and all that other stuff it's kind of stripped down yeah it's very like bare bones very bare bones but also it's not so fast that you're going to kill yourself on it and that's the important thing. So, and everybody, of course, says, you know, you should definitely buy used instead of new because of the depreciation and because it's your first bike and you're going to lay it down and you're going to feel bad about it and all this other stuff. And so I start thinking about this. And it's funny because we, uh, Alex and I always talk about manifesting things. And I'm like, you know, I really want a bike and I really want a specific kind of bike. And I'm just, you know, waiting for that specific kind of bike to show up. And out of nowhere, on Facebook Marketplace of all places, the bike that I wanted showed up in the color scheme that I wanted. The color scheme changes from year to year. So I was like, oh, my God. You know, it's like the heavens opened up and the sun and the, the light shone down and the Holy Spirit came down in the form <laughs> of a dove and said, fucking do it, man. Just fucking do it. So I go out gather up the money that i need to buy this bike and i bought this bike on a tuesday very excited i mean full excited yeah you bought it the day i came back from georgia right yes yeah i could not wait i could not i I was like i went and saw it on monday and i told the guys i was like look um uh, i had a i had a 401k from an old job that it was just sitting there and i was going to liquidate it anyway and i was like look i can get you the money tomorrow it's going to be in my account you know 3 a.m this morning it's going to be directly deposited and I can give it to you tomorrow. And they were excited about it. So they went ahead and took it off the Facebook marketplace the day before I went and got it. We met up. I gave them a cashier's check. They gave me the bike. Very, very excited. Now, I was smart enough to borrow a truck and a trailer and bring it to my house instead of trying to ride it directly. Because I have not ridden a, or I have not ridden any kind of motorcycle in probably 20-something years. I mean, and even then, it was like a, it was like a dirt bike. From a friend of mine, you know, probably like 125 cc's or some bullshit like that. It was a very small bike. And we were always laying it down and nobody gave a, gave a shit because we're like out in the middle of the, you know, the West Texas pasture and there's nowhere to get hurt or anything like that. And then I rode ATVs and stuff like that when I was in college. But I haven't been on a motorcycle in a very long time. So I brought it safely back to my house and I waited for Dylan to recover from being in, 
being gone from Georgia, being gone to Georgia for two weeks. And he finally comes over on a Thursday night. No, Wednesday night. Yeah, it was Wednesday. The next night. And we pull the bike out. And he rides it around around my neighborhood, and he's like, this is a badass bike, right? Yeah, it was pretty fucking cool. I don't fun. usually dig sport bikes as much, but that one was fucking rad. It, and it was smooth. It was fun. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. Anyway. So, and then I decide, okay, I'm going to try to ride this bike. Never ridden a bike, but of course, I've got, I know the fundamentals. I understand what, what needs to be done. And I get on the bike, and I successfully ride it around for about an hour around my neighborhood. Yeah, right? you do really well. You seem confident, and you're keeping it upright, and you're just, you know, not going too crazy. I always doing keep really it well. Upright. I was impressed. What? I said, I always keep it upright. Oh, Jesus God. Anyway, but I didn't have my helmet, or I was waiting for my helmet to come in, and I didn't have my jacket. So we just rode it around the block, and it was like, no big deal, you know. We planned on going that weekend. We're like, maybe we, you know, maybe we can go and ride somewhere around town, you know, a little bit. Uh, just to gain some experience. That was the plan. Yep. <laughs> so I text everybody that I know how excited I am. I'm all about the biker life, just like that. You know, just like that. It was like, boom, I'm Instantly. all about the biker life. Let's go. Yep. And I get it. And I'm proud. I was proud of I you. Know. Everybody you was so, so proud excited. Of me. Everybody was so proud of me. And at the same time, I have some friends at work who were like, be careful. You don't know what you're doing. You know, the. The, the capacity to hurt yourself is so high, especially at the very beginning because you don't know what you're doing. I went ahead and signed up for the rider safety course through Harley-Davidson, and I was supposed to do it. You know, I had planned on doing it in two weeks from that time. This was two weeks ago when all of this happened, at the very beginning of August, like the second week of August. Yeah, and I had told you to – I specifically told you, be safe and take it easy I before you safe, do your Harley course. I did take course. it easy. So – the next night comes along and Alex messages me and she was just getting started um, and she was she was kind of frazzled and she's like, I really don't feel like working anymore tonight. And I feel like, you know, just letting off some steam. Do you mind if I come over to your house and I can ride your bike? And I was like, hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. So I was like, yes, I get off work at 830. Come on over to the house. So I ran inside my house and I showered and I put on clean clothes and I had my helmet now and I put on my new jacket that had arrived from Amazon because I'm not spending a lot of money on myself. I did buy myself a good helmet, but I you bought did. myself a pretty discount jacket. Yeah, and of, this is the day after you bought your bike. I just want to make sure no, the two days after I bought my bike. I thought this was day one. No, no, no. I bought it on Tuesday. We rode it on Wednesday and on Thursday, Alex oh, okay. was coming over to ride it. Okay, so th this was the day after I came over. Then. Yes. Okay, but it was... This is day three. Days. Okay. This is day three of having a bike. I'm so excited. So Alex lives about 30 minutes away. She's on her way. At this point, because of how the, all of it lined up, I remember I was lacing up my boots and she messaged that she was on her way. And I said, great, I'm probably going to be riding by the time you get here. So put my phone in my jacket, put my keys, you know, all these other places in the, in the thing. And I go and unlock my garage and I pull my bike out and I start it up and I ride it around about twice around the block and I'm feeling great. I'm getting used to having the helmet on and the jacket on. It's all very, you know, it feels kind of bulky to begin with, but the yeah. jacket is, you know, it's good. It's got some, it's got some padding in it for protection from road rash and all of that. And I'm feeling great. So I'm still riding around and I'm basically doing what we had done the day before until I started coming around a particular corner, real close to my house. Like just literally right across, literally across it's the, the house street. in front of his. Yes. And I was going a little too fast and I took the turn too sharp because I felt like if I had, if I stayed on the trajectory that I was going, I was going to end up probably rear-ending, like bringing my bike rear-ending into into my car because I had parked it on the street. 
And so I turned too quickly, right? So my my bike starts going towards the curb and at the same time I hit a bump in the pavement and I hit the throttle. And so now I'm going even faster than I usually am, mm-hmm. right? And then I hit the curb and bite it. Just I'm landing, I'm on the ground, the bike is on the ground. The first thing that happens to me is that I can't catch my breath. I was on my back and I could not catch my breath. My chest really hurt, my shoulder hurt, my right shoulder hurt. So I, I rolled over onto my knees got on my hands and knees, took the helmet off, and I was able to catch my breath. I unzipped my jacket, took my jacket off, and laid back down on the ground on my back. And I was just kind of trying to catch my breath, thinking to myself, I cannot believe how fucking stupid I am right now. Like, I've had this bike literally 10 minutes, and I've already laid it down. Yeah. Like everybody said that I would. Yeah. Like everybody told me that I would. This is exactly the worst case scenario that everybody saw happening. And not only that, but like now I'm going to have to admit to Dylan, to Mm -hmm. all my friends at work, to my dad who has a Harley, to Alex who's on her way. Yep. That I just hurt my bike. But at the same time, I realize that my right leg feels like it's asleep from the knee down. And I kind of try to kick it awake. You know how you kind of kick your foot if it's asleep? Yeah. And it won't respond. So I feel down below my knee, right below my knee, and I notice that my shin bone doesn't feel exactly the same way as it usually does. <laughs> oh, great. Here we go. So I grab my phone, and I and I text you, yep. Dylan, through Snapchat. I'm like, bro, I just, I just hurt myself. Yeah, no, so what he... I need you to... What, what did he, I say? The, what he texted me... Now, I'm just chilling at my house at, like, 9.30 at night It was 9.30 shit. at night, yes. And then I get a text, and it's like, hey, bro, are you busy? <laughs> That's right! And I was like, not really, what's are up? You busy? And he's like, hey, man, I need your help. Uh, I need to go to the ER. And I was like, bitch, what? He's like, yeah, I went over the handlebars. Uh, I need to go to the ER. Can you come help? And I was like, for fuck's sake, Jake. I know. I know. I feel so stupid. Oh, my God. It was fucking. Okay. Now that I know that you're fine, it's hilarious I'm now. I'm fine. But it's still Well, I mean, now that I know that you're not, you know, dead or paralyzed. I yes. Um, oh, but at the time. Horrible. At the time, it was just like, hey, man, you busy? I know. I need to go to the fucking hospital. Not only that, but okay, so you're on your way. And then I I decide that I'm going to call Alex on her phone. And I call Alex, and this is exactly how it goes. She goes, hello. And I said, hey, uh, how far are you away? And she says, because I know that she always maps her way over here. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I'm 10 minutes away. And I said, yeah. So I hit a curb and went over my handlebars. And I'm probably going to need to go to the ER because I think one of my legs is messed up. My right leg is messed up. There's like a, and I reach down again to feel that spot in the shin bone where it's not exactly the same as the other one. And now my knee, everything below my knee is starting to swell. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, great. Yeah. When I got there, your shit was swollen. Was you it? like a balloon. Oh my God. Yeah. It was pretty rough. I was, <laughs> I got there and. Okay, so when I got there, you were sitting down with your neighbors there. Yes. But they came out, they brought me a chair, they helped me get up into a chair and sit, and they were like, Do you need me to call 911? Do you want to do this? I was like, No, I've got help on the way. People are coming to help me. They're they're like ten minutes away, it's cool, it's fine. I was trying to keep I mean I was I was I was keeping it calm. Yeah, you were pretty calm. But I got there and 
you know, I come to check on you and make sure you're all right. And pretty much the first thing you say to me is, hey, man, come feel my leg. Yes. And I walk Absolutely. over there and you try and like show me and I, you're like, here, just touch right here. Uh-huh. And I was like, I guess. OK, if this doesn't hurt you. And I couldn't feel anything. I know. And you were like, swollen. oh, it's it, it feels a little bit swollen. And I'm like, dude, you look like a sausage on half of your body right now. <laughs> Thanks. It was just, I'm just like, I couldn't feel anything. It was just smooth and it was inflamed. It was was bad. Rough. It was real bad. So I'm really calm on the phone with Alex. I'm like, yeah, I went over the handlebars and uh, I'm going to need you to take me to the ER. Um, I'm right across the street from my house. Dylan is here. He's helping me put the bike up. My neighbors helped me get into a chair, uh, but I'm just here. And she's like, are you serious? Are you joking with me? Because again, I'm saying it as calm as I'm saying it right now. Like I'm not in shock. I'm not in any pain, really. Yeah, you, know? you weren't like shaky or freaking exactly. out or anything. I got there and you were like super chill. You were just like, hey, what's up, man? I broke this is my how fucking I, leg. This is how I handle crisis and pain. Yep. That is exactly That's how I handle it. You get man. to see how I handle it. So I'm just there and she like, she still didn't believe me. She, was, she, she told me later on that as she was driving, she thought to herself, if I get there and he's joking at me, if he's joking with me, I'm going to kill him, but I'm going to be so relieved that he's joking with me, but I'm going to fucking kill him. Yeah, understandable. And, and so she gets there and it's not a joke. Not at all. Not at all. So we get into her car and I have to like bend my leg to get in there and it's so painful. Ugh. It only takes us five minutes to get to the ER. I get to the ER and it is just a big to do. You know, they're having to take off my boots. They're having to cut my jeans. Blah, blah, blah. This goes to this. Finally, we get the x-rays. And I have broken my tibia and my fibula below the knee. Mm -hmm. Clean. Clean breaks. So, to make the long story short, the orthopedist finally came to see me the next day after they had splinted my leg and given me all sorts of medication to help me sleep. And he's like, yeah, you're going to need surgery. We're going to have to put a titanium plate into your shin. And we're going to have to screw it in place, and it's going to stay in there forever. And it's called an open reduction internal fixation. That's the kind of surgery it's going to be. It's like you're going to be on crutches for six weeks. It's going to probably be about nine months before you can run. It's going to be six weeks before you can bear any weight on your on your leg. It was like, oh, man, this is heavy. So the doctor goes and sees me. Now, again, remember, this is during the time of COVID, so no one can go and see me in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, I I can have one visitor, but that's the only visitor that I can basically have. Yeah. And that was what I wanted to say. I know, Dylan. I know. (laughs) So So I'm laying in the, I'm laying in trauma three and they're talking to me and they're, you know, they got there. I'll do this and do that. And what's your birthday? And how did you fall? And what did you do this? They're all giving me those things. They're trying to get me, trying to see if I've got any brain injury or something. And they say, you can have only have one visitor uh, to come back. Do you want it to be your friend? Or do you want it to be your girlfriend? And I said, oh, there's obviously no, I said, I said to them, I said, it's obviously no contest. This is that romantic moment where you pick the girlfriend over the friend. And so. <laughs> yeah, but see, here's the thing. On my perspective, me and Alex go up to the hospital. They take our temperatures. Her temperature is a little bit high because she was really stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so they wouldn't let her in. Her temperature was too high. Mine was fine, so they let me in, and then I go up and I introduce myself to the you know the nurse dude that's chilling at the front. Did you tell him you were my male lover? No, oh. I told him I was you know here for the for Jake, you know the guy who came in on the motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, yeah, no worries. Uh, give me a few minutes, we'll go back there. So I'm sitting in the waiting room, 
and Alex can't come in. I'm texting her, trying to give her updates, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, that dude goes back into the back, and then he comes back out, and he's like, hey, bro, so, uh, your friend wants to see his girlfriend, not you, so can you, like, text her and see if she what? wants to come back in and, like, what? get her temperature taken? Why would he frame it like that? And I was like, uh, okay, sure. He's like, yeah, we can only have one person in there, and he said he'd rather have his girlfriend. And I was like, <laughs> fuck this clown, all right. So I text Alex, and she's like, okay, yeah, I understand. And she comes in and gets her temperature taken, and it's, you know, her it's temperature is fine, limits. but... As we're going in, the dude that was at the front of the hospital taking temperatures was like, you guys can't, like, you can't swap. You, mm-hmm. What are you doing? Like, it was going to be you or her. And I was like, well, I know that, but I didn't go back there to see him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, listen, guys, you're on thin fucking ice right now. He didn't say fucking. But he's like, you guys are on kind of thin ice right now. We're not supposed to be doing this. Right. But fine, if you're going home, I'll let her in. So and I was sitting there waiting. And then this dude just comes out and is like, hey, bro fuck you <laughs> it was like there wasn't right, anything cool. for you to do she stood in a corner and listened to the like i went out for i went out for cts twice first for the upper body and then for the lower body oh i know it was fine and honestly i didn't really want to be in the hospital that much yeah, i just thought it was really funny hospital? i just thought it was really funny when this dude came out and was like hey man your friend doesn't want to see you can you text that his girlfriend not exactly what happened <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny you know how it is anyway but yeah, just um, that's how I handle that's how I handle pain and adversity is by maintaining a uh, very calm demeanor. I was having a good time in the back talking to them, talking about bikes, talking about how stupid I was. Mm-hmm. You know, letting them know, yeah, I can I can help you get my get me from the gurney to the board, but man, my chest and my right shoulder were so sore after the after the wreck, and are still kind of sore. Like that right there, my shoulder hurts more than anything that they did to my knee. Yeah. Well, I'm so you, glad that I had my helmet on because I mean, my helmet took some scuffing. Yeah. And it would have been Luckily, my brains. it was like mostly on the windshield. It was weird how I did it. It was just the wind. It was just the windshield, the visor. Yeah. But anyway, it was a mess. Long story short, of course, I'm gonna be on, <laughs> be on crutches for the next six weeks. From that point, now I only have four more weeks. I went to see the orthopedist today. They took out all the staples on my leg. I had 45 staples in my leg. God damn. I know. Now I've got Steri-Strips. I can take a shower with it as long as I don't scrub my wound too much. I can scrub. I can clean my leg, which I haven't been able to shower with my leg inside the shower for two weeks now. Um, Every week I can flex, which is bend my knee. Basically, I can bend my knee a little bit more every time. Uh, So... But this minute he said six weeks, I realized, you know, I'm a commissioned salesman at a car dealership and I walk and drive every single fucking day. And it's like, well, I can't go back to that job. Yeah. So I, two things happened. I immediately started growing my beard back. Mm-hmm. And um, I started thinking about I need to find some other work from home job. So I ended up finding the perfect work from home job that is actually like legitimate and a full time job. And so I'm never going back to selling cars again as, as long as this job works out. Knock on wood. And uh, it's actually turned into like the breaking my leg is like one of the best things that's happened to me all year long. Other yeah, than honestly. meeting Alex. Yeah. Because, you know, I was able to pivot and find a really good job out of the whole thing. And I wouldn't have been doing that if I hadn't been at home that Monday after the surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't need home health. I got a shower chair and I've been crutching my way all over my house and doing my own laundry and changing my sheets and cooking and, you know, washing my dishes. And, I, you know. 
texting your buddy Dylan to come bring you food or to get you have stuff I not from H-E-B. For, wait, have I not compensated you for all, the, for all the favors that you've been doing me? I don't know in what way you mean, but... Well, like buying food for you, like, hey, bring okay, food, you buy me food, I'll pay yeah. for the food. Yeah, you did. Did we not go to Wings and Rings and I paid for your dinner? We did do that. That's right. That's right. I'm trying. I bought you a white zombie CD. I thought I gave you the money for that. Did you? I don't remember if I did or not. I'll look and see. I meant to. Don't worry about it, baby boy. It's fine. Thanks, Haas. Anyway, I'm trying to even things out. I understand that I'm asking you to do things like drive me, up, drive yeah. me places. I don't really give a shit. I work like one or two days a week. It That's literally right. doesn't matter. I have nothing going on. And it's awesome. Anyway, so I'm holed up in my house, which is okay because I spent a little bit of money to set up a home office. And now I'm actually using the home office because I'm working from home now. There you go. I told you it was a good investment. A really good investment. It turned out just great. Again, manifesting the things that you want. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's fuck it up, son. Anyway, so you want to turn about? You want to talk about turning a negative into a positive? I pulled that shit. Hell yeah, I feel brother. Good now. But I'm literally I'm wearing I'm wearing wife beaters and shorts every single day now. Oh yeah, this is my uniform now. It's been kind of rough for to the next. See this. Is it? It's not that bad. I don't look bad. No, it's just I like coming into the like cholo Jake look. That's right. You're like chilling with the goatee and then like the beard slightly coming back in. It's on its way back. And then you're just slumped back in your chair I with am the wife back beater. In my chair with my leg elevated. Yep. I need more tattoos. That's what I need. You do. I'm telling you, get more tattoos, man. <sighs> yeah. Okay. No, I have medical bills to pay now. Yeah, but you can ignore those basically. No, forever. I'm not going to ignore those. You can I, ignore those basically. No, forever. because they're, eventually I'm going to want to buy real. a car, and they're going to be like, "Hey, guess what? You've got these medical bills you never paid, and that's why your credit looks horrible." No, doesn't pay my matter. medical bills. This is the year of turning things around. All right. Anyway, that was what I hap- That's what's happened to me. It was so much fun. Not really. Super exciting. Super exciting. Not so much fun. Yeah. You also have to repair the bike now. The bike is actually not in as bad a condition as I thought it was going to be. It's not. I was moving Everybody... it back up to the garage, and it does turn on. You do it. I mean, you got a fucked up fork, but the bike yeah. turns on, and that's important. We've already done research. We know how to fix that. Exactly, yeah. We, you and I could fix that if we really, really wanted to. Probably. I, I know, know some people I know how to do it. I saw help. it. I seen it. Seen it? I seen it. The only thing we really need to worry about is we need to check to see that I didn't bend my wheel, my front wheel. Yeah, that's important. Because that's super important. But you won't feel that until either you put it on a, one of those balance thingy my bobbers, yeah. or you ride it on the highway. But we want to make sure that that's, that's not a thing that I did. But yeah. anyway, enough about that. This is a paranormal and true crime podcast, is it not? Is it? I couldn't tell not from a, the first not a bad, minutes. Not a bad decision <laughs> midlife crisis podcast. <laughs> It's whatever we say it is. We're in charge here. Yeah. We could talk about baking. Oh, baking is good. I, never mind. Don't worry about that. Let's not get into that. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> baking. I love that. baking. I do too, man. All right. What's your topic, Dylan? All right. Well, my topic this time is one that I'm pretty excited about. I was a little bit too into this topic when I was in elementary school. I did some school presentations plural on this particular thing what? uh and it got me into some fights with my stepdad and my mom <laughs> oh my god so stalking deep in the pine barrens the monster hides and lies in wait for those unlucky enough to cross his path 
This is the beast seen in the 1700s, the 13th child, the Leeds Devil, or as you may commonly know him, the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil! Dude, I fucking love the Jersey Devil. Did you like that dramatic intro that, that I put very in? Nice. Thank very you. Nice. Yeah, man, I was super into the Jersey Devil. I don't know what it was about him. I've never been to Jersey. I have no desire to go to Jersey. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was cool as shit. Jersey fucking Devil. radical. That's right. So, the... We're going to go first into the origin, like the legend of it, and then we're going to go into the sightings, because there's some interesting sightings. I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So legend says that the Jersey Devil was born to the Leeds family in 1735. The mom, who's just mainly referred to as Mother Leeds, found herself pregnant for a 13th time. The Leeds family was numerous, but not wealthy or well-to-do by any means. They struggled and struggled hard to survive. Uh, Mother Leeds did all she could to care for the family, but with an abusive, lazy drunk as a husband, she could have lived so much. What? Jesus, who never pulled out. Apparently. Obviously. Well, this was, you know, they needed TV. Obviously. Do something else. Right? Now, she's already, she already has 12 kids with this piece of shit dude. Uh, she felt the the crippling weight of adding a new child into their household, and in her frustration and rage, she shouted out to the universe, let this one be a devil. You know, as one does. Why would you say that? But whatever. <sighs> so, a few months later, on a thunderous stormy night, Mother Leeds gave birth with her family and midwives crowded by. The baby came out perfectly normal at first, but soon Mother Leeds remembered the curse that she shouted to the heavens as it came to fruition. Their newborn baby started crying and changing before their eyes, started growing rapidly from a newborn baby into a full-grown monster, horns and claws growing from its skin, and large leathery wings sprouting from its back as fur and feathers covered its body, and hooves grew where its feet were once. My god. This is cool as shit, man. I love this thing. So with huge claws and glowing red eyes set deep in its horse-like head, the snarling beast turned to its mother and cut her down like a wild animal before turning to the rest of the family who stared in horror and awe, and it lunged at them. It ripped apart the midwives at the limbs. It slashed and bit and would butcher anyone it could get a hold of, killing a few and maiming the rest. It let out a horrifying shriek and crashed into the next room, unfurling its huge wings and flying out of the chimney into the open woods outside. That is the origin of the Jersey Devil. I missed it. Did they ever give that kid a name? No, they didn't have time because the baby came out and then it just turned into a monster and it butchered the family. What? (laughs) Yeah, it killed its mom, and then it just killed the midwives and some of the other family members. That sounds like Mordred Deschain, but go ahead, keep going. So throughout the 18th and 19th century, the beast was spotted with some frequency in the Pine Barrens and throughout southern New Jersey, uh, the legend gaining popularity and momentum as the sightings increased, and eventually spread outside of the Pine Barrens. In the early months of 1909, the witnesses reported seeing the beast in and around Bristol, Pennsylvania, Delaware Valley, Camden, and a lot of other locations, actually. Uh, Some of these reports even came from police officers who saw the beast and submitted their report saying that they tried to shoot it down with no avail. That's how serious they were about it. (laughs) Look, it's something flying in the air. Only in Jersey. Let's try to shoot that motherfucker down. Exactly. (laughs) 
So the reports grew more frequent and the terror spread throughout southern New Jersey, so much so that schools actually shut down or suffered incredibly low attendance. People refused to leave their houses and go to work, and reports said, this one was weird, reports said that bloodhounds refused to follow the sense of the mysterious beast into the woods, and few people dared to even enter the woods, even in broad daylight. Yeah. The yeah. smart ones. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that part makes sense, but, like, can you imagine, like, in today's world, if somebody was like, hey, there's a monster over there, and schools were like, oh, yeah, fuck this, we're not opening up. No. Because the schools are like, there's COVID, we have an epidemic, we have a pandemic right now, let's go ahead and open up. Exactly. Okay. Fucking 1909 New Jersey schools took a monster from a legend more seriously than schools across the U.S. are taking an actual pandemic. That's right. Love this shit. I love it. Hashtag America the greatest. America! Fuck yeah. Alright, so the reports of the Jersey Devil were numerous and varied greatly. The general description of the Jersey Devil remained the same, but cases ranged on this huge spectrum of people finding out about it. Um, Some of these instances ranged from a trolley full of people in Burlington who had reported that they saw the beast run in front of their trolley and then out of sight into the woods next to them, um, all the way down to a cab driver who reportedly saw the beast at night and then when he was stopping to change a tire, said that the Jersey Devil beat against the roof and hood of his cab before flying off. Jesus Christ. Right? There was another report... Um, A group of, it said a late night social club, uh, said that the Jersey Devil attacked them and flew off into the sky. And a group of firemen reportedly saw the beast near a fire that they were putting out, um, and they had turned their hose on it, causing it to fly away from them. Even a few farmers reported having their livestock stolen, killed, and eaten, all within rapid succession of each other. So multiple different farms in, like, this particular stretch of land we're just all of a sudden reporting missing or eaten animals yuck yeah but it's just kind of weird the variety of like reports some of them are just it ran in front of something and then some of them are straight up this thing came up and attacked me and my friends oh my god like fucking wild but one thing that was really cool was that one of the most famous people to ever report seeing the jersey devil was none other than Joseph Bonaparte, brother of the famed Napoleon Bonaparte. What the fuck? Yep. What's he doing in Jersey? Trying to get away from Napoleon, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so Joseph Bonaparte claimed to have seen the beast while he was out hunting on his border town property in 1812. Uh, He had seen that while he was out looking in the property, he saw a beast fitting the description of the Jersey Devil that was on the ground and then went into the sky and vanished from his sight. It's fucking wild, man. It's fucking weird, man. The stories and the sightings of the Jersey Devil actually continued with relative frequency throughout, you know, the 1900s, you know, the early 1900s, and even getting into the mid-1900s. People were still scared about this. I mean, going on, you know, a couple decades, they're just horrified. And as panic increased, the police all the way in 1960, tried their best to assure the townsfolk that the stories of the Jersey Devil were just stories. However, 
A clever circus owner used the hysteria to his advantage and sparked a hunt for the Jersey Devil. He offered a $100,000 reward to anybody who could capture it. That's a lot of fucking money. Exactly. Especially in 1960. Now it's a lot of money. What are you talking about? Yeah, no kidding. But I would turn you in for half of that. That hurts, but that's fair. Just letting you know. I know. That's why I don't tell you things. Just throwing it out. Anyway, but like, yeah, so while these poor cops are trying to like assure horrified townsfolk that, yes, the thing that, you know, came from a weird curse in the 1700s and has the head of a horse with large bat-like wings Mm -hmm. is not real, this circus owner's like, fuck you, here's some money if you get it, it's definitely real. Yup. So like he said, he offered that $100,000 reward for anyone who would capture it. However, the reward was never given and the monster was never caught. But he did manage to successfully renew interest in the Jersey Devil and furthered sightings and made sure he kept that momentum going. Absolutely. So people all across Jersey and into the surrounding location were still reporting sightings and still hunting And now you had people that were actually going into the woods, actively trying to find this thing. Because $100,000, I would go into the spooky woods to try and kill a cryptid. I'm just going to throw it out there. Unless it's Mothman. I love Mothman. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't try to kill Sasquatch. But Jersey Devil, fuck yeah. Oh, I would blow the Jersey Devil's brains out. Tomorrow. Chupacabra, I would stomp its teeth out. No questions asked. Let's do it. Let's find the chupacabra for a hundred thousand dollars. Hell yeah! Absolutely. The interest in the Jersey Devil continued. Um, this all happened in like the sixties, mm-hmm. um, and with this continued interest, it ended up getting into the modern age. Uh, sightings continued throughout the seventies, the eighties, and the nineties. Um, now, there. From what I could find, the most recent sighting of the Jersey Devil is actually as soon as 2015. That's not even that long ago. That's five years ago. From did they take a photo of it? Probably not. They just filed some sort of report saying that they saw spooky shit. But in 2015, there was a sighting of the Jersey Devil. So this interest has actually continued even into the modern age when we realize that something like that is probably not real like i put a lot of faith in a lot of things the jersey devil is just a nifty story oh absolutely and of course no actual evidence has been captured of the jersey devil and its story is like i was saying outlandish to say the least but it's a fascinating one nonetheless and it's something that new jersey has since really embraced and has helped to inform on most of the information that I got on this actually came from NJ.com, like the official New Jersey website. Oh my god. They have you? a whole section dedicated to the Jersey Devil. Well, that's good. You gotta embrace that shit. Exactly. Kind of the same way that Point Pleasant did with Mothman. Mm-hmm. You know, they have, I mean, they don't have a cool statue of the Jersey Devil like Point Pleasant does. Cause, that's because you know. Jersey Devil looks weird as compared to Mothman. That's true. But they do have a lot of, like, Jersey Devil-themed things in town. Of course, there's a lot of vendors. It's just one of those kind of kitschy places. Um, But it's cool, like with Mothman, to see these locations embrace something like that and actually use this to their advantage rather than, you know, a lot of places where they'll just shut it down or, you know, ignore it, which I could completely understand. But I think it's really cool 
when these places actually choose to embrace that and make it a part of you know who they are and a part of the history um like i said going so far as to like on the official new jersey website posting the legend of this and like lists of different sightings and there's a another website called i think it's called weird new jersey um that is like there's pages and pages and pages of shit just dedicated to the jersey devil i think it's fucking cool man and there's a lot of different sightings and if you guys are interested i absolutely encourage you to go take a read through some of them i didn't want to list all of them i listed some of the ones that kind of stood out to me but there's just so much that you can read through and you can look at with these reports ranging back from the 1700s all the way into the modern day and i think it's really really cool um like i said i was super into the jersey devil when i was a kid uh, I did a lot of presentations on him. That's pretty funny. I did a lot of research on this clown, and I can kind of see why my parents were worried. It's a little, little too into it for a while, um, but I just think it's interesting, man. I love cryptids. I obviously always have, That's and cool. it's just fucking radical, man. So that was the Jersey Devil. Excellent. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I thank you for coming to my TED Talk. That's great. You think you have a TED Talk? Well, I'm ready for this. Yeah. All right. Well, real quick, we are going to take a short break, and then we will come back, and we'll listen to whatever nonsense Jake is about to spew. That's right. I got to go take my pain pill. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Jesus. I do have pain pills. If you want some, just let me know. No, thanks. Yeah. And yeah. we are back after our short break. Awesome. All Excellent. Right. So, I'm going to talk to you about a man named Robert Garrow who was an American spree killer who was active in New York in the early 1970s. Now, the difference between a spree killer and a serial killer is that a spree killer just kills a certain a certain number of people in a very short amount of time. There's really no rhyme or reason. He's just trying to kill as many people as he can in, a certain, in just a short amount of time. As Groovy. opposed to you know, a serial killer who's either an organized or disorganized serial killer who's got an idea of how he wants to hunt and he's looking for a particular type of person with a particular set of uh, of like um, premeditated factors and that sort of thing. That's, mm-hmm. what a, that's what a serial killer does. This is a spree killer. Now, the thing about Robert Garrow is that he's, his criminal trial became larger than life, and it actually eclipsed him. His criminal trial is known in legal circles as the buried bodies case. That's pretty neat. Yes, and it became an important case in legal ethics. Because his attorneys refused to disclose the location of two bodies of his victims, citing attorney-client privilege. What the fuck, dude? Exactly. It's so crazy. All right. So Garrow was born in 1936, and he claims his parents were very severe, violent disciplinarians who regularly physically abused their children with whatever was handy, even bricks. His accounts have been corroborated and repeated by his siblings. He uh, eventually settled in New York State in 1957, where he married and fathered one son. His life, however, did not improve. He was fired from a series of menial jobs, including from a fast food restaurant where he burglarized. He was involved in in an abusive relationship with a man that he later described as a sadist. His first time arrested was in 1961 for rape. Well, he was arrested for rape in 1961, and he ended up spending seven years in prison. Soon after, he was released. He committed a series of rapes, and many of his victims were children. 
Oh, fucking awesome. Oh, Super cool. This guy's human excrement. He was arrested for rape of two prepubescent girls, but jumped bail and became a fugitive. Now, his spree killing started in the year 1973. And in July 1973, Garrow ended up murdering four people, including a young woman who he kidnapped and repeatedly raped before killing, and a high school-aged camper in the Adirondacks a few days later. God, what happened damn. was... These four teenagers, like 18, 19 years old, were hiking up in the Adirondacks and they were camping. And um, on a particular day in July, about nine o'clock in the morning, he walked up to their camp and unzipped their tent, their tent and asked them to come outside. He pointed a gun at them and um, made them separate into two pairs. He carried two off into one particular direction, had one guy, while he held him at gunpoint, had one person tie the, tie the one person up, right? So you know person number one gets tied up by person number two then he ties up person number two then he went back and got the other two and separated them far off Mm -hmm. had them tie each other up and then he tied up the last person and then at one point they're all there and they're scared shitless and they hear the first victim start to gurgle and it sounds like he's vomiting well actually what's happening is garrow was stabbing him with a knife oh geez stabbed him in the chest um, so the other three managed to get loose of their bonds and they started running away from Garrow. Garrow ran after them and recaptured one of the boys and made him lie down to hide in a ditch with him. Now, the other two kids made it to another campsite and alerted authorities and people started coming along with, with weapons to try to find out where Garrow was. Once, once they were, um, once the kids were in sight of Garrow and the, and the and kid number three who was hiding in the ditch, the kid ran away from him and said, he's got a gun, he's got a gun, move out of the way. Garrow stands up and calmly walks back into the forest. And he managed to stay a fugitive for 12 days. What the fuck? There was fuck? a 12-day manhunt. It was the largest in New York State history at that time. Roadblocks were set up at intersections throughout the Adirondack Park requiring motorists to open vehicle trunks for thorough searches. Now, here's the thing. It caused such a widespread panic that the local campers in the area were spooked, and many of them just abandoned their campsites, leaving behind tents, fuel for fires, and food, which actually helped him Oh no! Remain a fugitive. I didn't even think about because he was able that. to move from one campsite to the next using the abandoned supplies to survive and to evade authorities. Shit, man. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But they're just giving him all this shit that he can yes. keep using. Motorists Fuck. were warned not to stop for anyone on foot near the near the roads for fear that Garrow might have tried to pose as a hitchhiker. Um, people were locking their doors. Obviously, everybody was walking. You know, everybody was moving around with rifles and shotguns and that sort of thing. Finally, August 9th, which of course is like you know almost a week and a half later, a conservation officer by the name of Hillary LeBlanc Jr. corners Garrow 60 miles north of the murder scene. Damn. Um, he was shot in the foot, the arm, and the back, but survived and was put into co- police custody in the hospital. With a murder charge, yeah, right. But at this at this point in time, they only know about the one murder, and this is where the shit really gets wild. Oh, this no. is where the buried bodies case starts. Okay, Garrow had been in legal trouble before, and he had um, he had used a particular criminal defense lawyer by the name of Frank Armani to help him try to get out of 
get out of trouble. So mm-hmm. Armani was familiar with Garrow at the time. He was actually his he was actually his um, his lawyer during the time that he was about to be tried for rape of the two girls when he jumped bail and became a fugitive, right? Okay. So Armani's just minding his own business, and then he gets a call from the hospital saying. You know, we've got this guy. He's arrested. He's going to be put on trial. He's, he's waiting for recovery, but he wants you to represent him. Now, he did not want to represent him because he had never represented anybody in a murder trial before. This yeah. is not what he wanted to do. Not to mention the fact but there, that there's, like, no way that this guy's going to get get off. You know? It's like a loser case. Exactly. And is this before he knows who it is that he would be defending? He knew it was Garrow. Okay. So on top of with like all he of the knows discomfort it. there, yes. he, he knows that this dude already ran away he one time. He knows he's a slime ball. Yeah. He really does. So the judge talks to him um, and says, look, there's no, I can't get, I, there's nobody else. You're going to have to be appointed as the public defender. This guy doesn't have any money for a lawyer. He doesn't want to talk to anybody else except you. He doesn't want... He doesn't want to be represented by anybody but you, and there's no way that I can get out, get you out of doing it. So you're just going to have to defend him. So Armani says, okay, but I'm going to get somebody else to help him out. So he gets another another lawyer named Francis Belgi to try to help him out with the with the defense. And Belgi, of course, doesn't want to have anything to do with the case either because it's a loser case. There's no way this guy's going to get off. But Armani says, look, I can tell you this guy is cuckoo crazy. And maybe we can get him off on an insanity defense, mm-hmm. you know. And so instead of him send, spending the rest of his life in a maximum security prison, maybe he can get into a state hospital. But that's basically what we do. But it was such a high profile case at this point that some of it is just like, well, you know, you're going to get you're going to get publicity, even if it's a loser case. You're still going to get publicity as a criminal defense lawyer just by being on the case. So Belgi decides that they're going to do it. Yeah. So, um Armani had described Garrow as a very strong man, very formidable. So Belgi and Armani go back to the hospital to talk to him. And they're worried that the cops, they've got him in one of these observation rooms with the, with the, with the, uh, the two-way mirror. Mm-hmm. And they figure that the cops are trying to get information out. There's, there was the speculation that the cops brought in a lip reader to try to figure out exactly, to try to get some information out of it. So Belgi and Armani try everything that they can to try to, uh, try to protect their their client's confidentiality. They turn the fan on, they turn the TV on, and they try to get they try to get Garrow to tell their story um, so that they could try to start working on a defense. They had a difficulties getting him to speak to them, and finally they convinced, to, they convinced him to speak when they explain that an insanity defense is probably his best bet and that he could be assigned to a mental hospital instead of a prison, like I said earlier. Yeah. So... Garrow says that before he goes on a murder spree, he gets an intense headache that triggers some sort of fugue state. And then he goes into this killing spree and then forgets the details. Right. That's basically his defense. Yeah, so they're of course going he with does. That, right. And so they start trying to ask him. They tell him and, and they try to they try to get especially Armani tries to tell him, look, I'm your lawyer. I need to know everything that's going on. You need to be completely honest and open with me so that I can I can present the best defense. And so Garrow confesses to the murders, but he also confesses to murdering two missing women and hiding their bodies. One of them was a 21-year-old woman who he had he had um she was like she was in college and he had murdered her boyfriend and then she had gone missing and the other one was a 16-year-old girl. Oh, God. Okay. And the way that he described it was, she got stabbed with my knife. So they're so weird. You know, he's already being weird enough. And they're not sure whether Belgi and Armani aren't sure whether he's being serious. Is he crazy? Is this a fantasy? Does any of this happen? So 
they decide to confirm whether or not Garrow is telling the truth. They used a diagram that he read, that he had, that he had, um, that he had drawn, to try to uncover the bodies. One of the girls, the twenty-one-year-old girl, he said that he had, um, he had shoved her body down an air shaft of a coal mine, and he drew them a map. Mm-hmm. So they get in their car and they're driving through the Adirondacks through like this mountain pass. They're driving up to try to find this body. They got spooked as they were driving. They thought maybe somebody somebody was following them. So they stopped along the way at a bar where uh, Belgi knew one of the bartenders. And they got a drink, and they talked to her for a little while, and they asked if they could borrow her car so they could switch cars. They're up there in their suits, right, because mm-hmm. they're lawyers. And they're hiking around in the middle of the fucking darkness looking for basically an air shaft, which is just basically like a like a depression in the ground. You know, it's not something that you could easily find. It's just a long, dark hole yeah. into a mine shaft, right? So they finally find the mine shaft where it is, and they can't see anything. So Armani lowers himself into the mine shaft with Belgi holding onto his feet, and he uses a flashlight, and he sees a girl's sneaker and a leg, and he realizes that there's a dead body down there, oh, just, like, just like Garrow had said. Okay, so body number one, they have found it. Body number two was later uncovered. Belgi found the 16-year-old girl in a nearby cemetery based on Garrow's description. The lawyers photographed the remains of the women. Belgi moved Hawk's, Hawk's body to ensure that a dismembered part was included in the photograph. But they later destroyed the photographs. They later destroyed the record of their conversation with Garrow and the diagram that he drew. So now they're covering this shit up. I was going to say, so now it's just a fucking cover-up because, what, they don't want to look bad? Sort of. So Belgi and Armani tell no one about their discoveries. Now, they believe, this is what they said, they believe that they were bound by their duty of confidentiality um, not to disclose the information because it it incriminates their client, right? So they're saying, we we have a responsibility, a legal responsibility to protect our client, and we can't disclose this information because i'm we're bound by confidentiality so they chose not to alert the, the, the authorities despite pleas from hawk's father for information here's the creepiest part the 16 year old girl he knew the 16 year old girl knew armani's daughter they went to the same school holy shit yes really? and at one point the dad had gone to armani's office and said can you please ask your can you please ask your client if he knows anything about where my daughter is? Maybe he took her, you know? It happened around the same time when he was killing other people. Is there anything that you can tell him? And he told him nothing. Holy shit. Are you fucking kidding I'm me? I'm not kidding you. Can you imagine how fucking furious he mm-hmm. would be as the dad? Family members and authorities continue to search for the women, hoping that they were alive, hoping that they would find something. The bodies were discovered accidentally five months after Garrow confessed in private to his attorneys. They were found within two weeks of each other. Now, what happens is they're, uh, let me get here. Okay, so here's what Armani and Belgi were doing with that information. Here's what they wanted to do. They proposed a plea bargain with the DA trying to use the information that they had uncovered ahead of trial. The prosecute, they told the prosecutor that they might be able to provide information to help authorities find the missing women if Garrow was sentenced to life in a mental hospital rather than prison, and the prosecutor refused. Okay, so they said, hey, send him to a mental hospital, and then we'll, we'll yeah, they tell said, well, you. They said, we might have confessed. information. Okay. Both the DA and the investigator in charge were both dumbfounded that the defense lawyers would basically stoop to such an odious level 
yeah, to exactly. try to bargain like this. Okay? Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. But again, Armani felt that the plea was the best option again to get the... In- okay, now here's the other thing about Armani. He was... He says later on that he was racked with guilt. He was not sleeping well. He would wake up because he knew where that... He knew where that girl was... was he knew where the girl's bodies were. He knew that information. But he was bound by confidentiality. Okay? So after the fact, once he's... Once he's um, asked about it and once he's interviewed about it he says i was trying to do the right thing i wanted to be able to get that information out there but the only way that i could do that without incriminating my client without breaking our confidentiality was by using that information in the plea bargain because what well, if they said okay then i could go in and disclose the information and then i could get garrow to disclose that information and the families would have closure and the bodies would be found yeah but he felt like again, you know, he's trying to say that this was how this was the only way he knew to take the moral high and the moral and the ethical high ground, or or to be able to do this at the same time. He knew he was hurting hurting people, um, but he just didn't have any other way to do it. So they find the girls in December of 1973. In the summer of 1974, Gerald's trial for the murder of the boy of that 18 year old boy, the Adirondacks, the camping trip, starts. Armani and Belgi are, pursu- are pursuing an insanity defense. Um, the defense puts Garrow on the stand and he tells his life story. He talks about being beaten as a young boy. He was basically sold off by his family to a farm at the age of seven, like indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. Like the, the farmer gave him a certain amount of money and the kid was theirs to use. Jesus. He was slaughtering bulls by the time he was eight years old. He started to drink the blood of the animals and have sex with the animals. That's hey, what he yo, said. Hey, yo, what the fuck? I know. He said all this on the, on the stand. He confesses to graduating to rape in his adult life, and he, and he admits on the stand to killing the two girls. Oh, okay. And hiding their bodies. Now, while testifying in his own defense and um, admitting this, during cross-examination, Belgi... His attorney asks him, is that the one I found? Implying that he was aware of the dead women prior to the trial. Oh, shit. Now, whether this is a misstep on his on his part, something that he didn't man- manage to say, or he wanted it to get out, we'll never know, because the guy's dead. Okay? But Belgi says this in court, and then the next day, the attorneys hold a press conference where they admit that they had known about the location of the missing women for six months automatically they become the villains of this story yeah no shit they were harassed and threatened by the public for keeping the information about the deceased women's secret they received death threats angry letters armani's wife found an un an un uh like a like a ready a molotov cocktail in her car as if somebody was going to firebomb they started carrying a they had a shotgun that they had by the bedside table they he started carrying a gun in his briefcase News outlets claim that they had obstructed justice or acted as accomplices after the fact. Uh, everybody, everybody criticized them. Yeah, understandably mm-hmm. so. But of course, they're trying to say, well, we have confidentiality with our client. So a couple of things happened. A grand jury investigated the, the attorney's conduct, trying to disbar them. Yeah. Belgi was indicted for allegedly viol- violating two state public health laws by failing to disclose his discovery of the dead bodies. There's basically a public health law out there, two public health laws, that say if you find a dead body, you're supposed to disclose the location so it can be disposed of properly or, you know, buried properly. Okay. They ended up having to go into court. 
uh, in the People versus Belgi, he claims he claimed conversations about the missing women were confidential and protected by the attorney-client privilege, which prevents lawyers from disclosing protected communications about their clients. He claimed he could not have shared the information with authorities. The National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers wrote a brief supporting Belgi, arguing the, that attorney-client privilege would be destroyed if Belgi were convicted. So the New York County Court dismisses the indictment in the interest of justice. The court found that Belgi had protected the Fifth Amendment constitutional right of his client not to incriminate himself. One of the victim's parents filed ethics complaints against Armani and Belgi with New York State Bar Association disciplinary officials. The Bar Association on Professional Ethics found that the attorneys acted ethically by refusing to disclose information about the missing women. The committee explained that the attorneys would have violated their ethical obligations to keep their clients' confidential information secret if they had disclosed the details to the authorities. The ethics opinion emphasized that the attorney-client privilege is necessary to ensure clients disclose all possible pertinent information to their lawyers. It further explained that the disclosure of all possibly pertinent information allows attorneys to craft the strongest defense and protect their clients' rights to the fullest extent. I can kind of understand Mm -hmm. what they mean by that. You know, obviously he told them that in private and attorney client privilege is something that should be you know i mean it's something that should be in place and it's something that needs to be upheld but like you gotta call in like an anonymous tip or he something thought about that but like to just be like oh cool here's a dead body let me move it around a little bit and take some pictures uh and then not do anything with that mm-hmm. like that's just you went about that all the wrong fucking ways dude yeah, I mean, they were completely vilified. Belgi quit practicing law. Armani tough, toughed it out but suffered in his career. He had problems with the alcohol. But now this case has eclipsed Garrow as a person. Mm-hmm. And it's used as a legal touchstone. And at least in the eyes of defense lawyers and professors, Armani is seen as doing the right thing by his client, Armani and Belgi. Okay. Yeah, like I said, I can understand the attorney-client attorney client privilege thing. Like, the confidentiality. But, man, there's no good way about this, really. Oh, no, there's not. Just, Jesus Christ, man. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. But that's basically the buried bodies case. Um, Garrow ended up being convicted for murder. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. He pretended to be per, uh, paralyzed a couple of times what and tried to escape. And finally, finally, in 78, he um, got into a shootout with guards and was killed. Damn. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he's just a piece of trash, and so I don't feel like summarizing any more of his life. Because honestly, like I said, his case completely eclipsed him as as the person yeah because it of started how, because of how it just it, it set all these legal precedents for for legal ethics and for uh client lawyer confidentiality um that are that are still in play now yeah yeah because i mean it started with him but obviously ended in a totally different you know discussion and a totally different issue mm-hmm. in that you have you know this piece of shit dude but then also you have like, well, did you do the right thing by not telling them? Did you do the right thing by, or should you have done something else? And there's, yeah, there is a lot to it, and it's in a weird moral gray area or legal gray area. 
Um, well, at the time it was kind of a legal gray area, but now it's seen as yes, if your lo- if your client discloses information like this, you have a legal obligation to keep it confidential because you are legally obligated to basically craft the best defense that you can. Yeah. And so if you've got something that's going to incriminate your 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 client further, then you can't. Not only that, but if if a if a client knew that something like this could be disclosed, then they were they're not going to be completely they're not going to be completely open and honest with their defense lawyers. Exactly. You know, they're going to know that their confidentiality can be broken. So yeah, this whole the, the case took on a life of its own after after the fact. Yeah, that's fucking wild though. Yeah. But that's the buried bodies case. It's horrible. Damn, son. Crazy. That's really interesting though. It is. I really thought this was going to be like another interesting, you know, true crime crazy oh, yeah. dude and goes and never found the guy. No, none of that. It was Yeah, like rape murders a bunch of people and then, you know, buried a bunch of whole, you know, a bunch of bodies, but like this is fucking weird as shit, man. It is. It's fascinating. Yeah, it really put everybody into a, this whole ethical conundrum at the time. But again, set precedent. And became larger than, you know, larger than the actual crime. Yeah. Was how the was how the lawyers handled it and uh, you know, how they protected their client mm-hmm. and how lawyers nowadays protect their clients. Yeah, that's fucking wild, though. That's really, really cool. Yeah. And I think it's fucking crazy how the actions of the lawyers will will end up being the story where mm-hmm. the, the murders aren't. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But everybody, you know, I mean, they, they went through hell to to doing what they did. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Completely vilified for years and years and years. But within the legal community, they're seen as doing the right thing. Yeah. By their client. Mm-hmm. Even if it was just reprehensible in the eyes of the public. Yeah, absolutely. That's fucking weird. Yep. Well, thanks for sharing. You're I welcome. had never heard of that. There it is. Buried bodies case. Nice. That was a good one. Eh, thanks. That wow. was another Alex request. Ah, nice. Yeah. So. That was a good one. Alex knows her shit. Good she does for know her. her shit. She really does. Good for her. Yeah. All right. You got anything else, Dylan? No, I think I'm good. Me too. All right. All right. Well, from Dylan, my co-host, my name is Jake, and we hope we've left you too scared to sleep.